Welcome to the first episode of A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, a podcast that documents the history of children's film and television from 1965 to 1985 through interviews with the creators and participants who brought these projects to life. My name is Kayla Janice. I'm a film writer, former film programmer, founder of the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, author of the book House of Psychotic Women, producer and editor of special features for Severin Films, a lot of horror stuff. So I would say since the 90s, the bulk of my work has been in horror, but I also specialize in music films and kind of weird kids films, and when they intersect, even better. So in 2015, I published an anthology book called Kid Power, which brought together essays and interviews about child empowerment in film, which covered everything from ABC after school specials, to the dark era of Disney when they were making films like The Watcher in the Woods and Something Wicked This Way Comes, and other oddities like Hawk Jones and the original adaptation of Jacob Tutu and the Hooded Fang. And that book was the precursor to a much larger book project I wanted to do called A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, and that looked at the intersection of children's programming and the counterculture. So how countercultural values made their way into kids' films and TV programming in the 1970s, how the personnel who worked on these shows, from the writers to the animators and musicians, often had a countercultural background of some sort, and how the aesthetics of the counterculture were often co-opted by mainstream producers so that sometimes you couldn't even tell the difference between which was which. And so that book project became the starting point for this podcast. And not every episode will have a countercultural slant, but today's episode certainly does. Oh, I'd give anything to be a rock star. Anything. this podcast is taken from Nelvana's 1978 Halloween TV special, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, a rock-infused supernatural television special whose preoccupations would later be elaborated upon in Nelvana's first feature film, Rock and Rule, in 1983. So for this first episode, I wanted to look at The Devil and Daniel Mouse, and to a lesser extent, Rock and Rule, as a means of examining how the three artists who founded the Canadian animation studio Nelvana in 1971 Uh, Michael Hirsch, Clive A. Smith, and Patrick Lubert, how they emerged from the radicalism of the 60s with the goal of making intelligent children's animated films informed by their mutual interest in underground filmmaking, alternative pop culture, and the obligatory 70s dose of anti-establishmentarianism. The three of them shared a unique aesthetic and artistic sensibility that made Nelvana internationally renowned as a dynamic complement to the animation being produced by the National Film Board of Canada at the time, but like many independent artists faced with their first taste of recognition, it seems like they had ambiguous feelings concerning their steady immersion into the mainstream. And consciously or otherwise, this made its way into the narratives of The Devil and Daniel Mouse and Rock and Rule both of which feature singers whose souls, or more specifically whose voices, are sold or sacrificed to the devil. This television special had a profound impact on me as a kid, not only because its emphasis on music resonated with me, because I was already spending my allowance on records when I was like six years old, but in some ways I feel I might still be guided by its values, loyalty, sincerity, and most of all, this idea of never selling out. I own two 16mm prints of The Devil and Daniel Mouse. One of them I believe I unofficially inherited from Scott Moffat at the Cosmic Hex archive, i.e. never returned, so Scott, if you want that back, you know where I am. I also have a 16mm print of the making of Devil and Daniel Mouse, as well as some other Nelvana TV specials from that era, so I've definitely seen The Devil and Daniel Mouse more than any other Canadian film, and so I've had a lot of time to think about this. And as I found from speaking to the creators of The Devil and Daniel Mouse, I've maybe thought about it too much, but I'll leave that for you to decide. So I'm talking here to Clive Smith, one-third of Nelvana and the director of The Devil and Daniel Mouse, who came to Canada from the UK in the 1970s, and he'll set up a bit of the context for how Nelvana got off the ground. I came here for a year, 
That was in 1967. Never quite made it back. (laughs) I had been working in animation just a little bit, just enough to get completely addicted. And I worked on some sub, sub, sub contract works from a tiny little studio just outside West London. And we worked on the Lone Ranger series. We worked on the Beatles series, the Beatles, Yellow Submarine. I think actually everybody in London who could hold a pencil did at least one drawing on Yellow Submarine because they were drawing right up to the, to the release date. It was insane. So, you know, my um, involvement in animation in London came to a very quick end when the small company went bankrupt that I was working on. And there was virtually no interest in industry there at all. But one of the guys that I worked with there had word that, somebody in Toronto was looking for animators. I was eventually convinced to meet Vladimir Gotselman, who was working for Algest Animation in Toronto. I met with him, we had some beers, and I really liked him, he liked me. It seemed like an adventure, so I came. And it was just for a year. They were looking for animators for Rocket Robin Hood. I wasn't even an animator, I was in betweening. I was painting cells, I was, you know, general production person. I'd barely done any, the only animation I'd done was an absolute failure, the actual animation. I mean, anyway, I was very, very, very green, (laughs) but enthusiastic. And the year went by in 15 minutes. Um, I formed a band with uh, Carol Pope and Kevin Staples, who went on to do Be Rough Trade. And at the same time, I was freelancing um, doing illustrations, doing some animation. And then I met Patrick and Michael, who, were, who had a company, a sort of company. I don't think it was a real company. I mean, it was um, uh, just an association called Laugh Arts. In the late 1960s, Michael Hirsch was already working in a mixture of animation and experimental filmmaking as a student at York University in Toronto. And while making a film called The Assassination Generation with fellow student Jack Christie, the two of them met Patrick Lubert, who assisted them with their next project, which was an art film called Voulez-vous coucher avec God, which utilized split-screen, cell animation, pixelation, and claymation. Hirsch and Lubert became campus pranksters, staging multimedia events, performances, and poetry readings, and eventually gained employment at the Toronto offices of Cineplast, which was a U.S.-based animation company that was doing service work for the then-nascent Sesame Street. Disillusioned with doing subcontract work, Hirsch, Lubert, Christie, and fellow filmmaker Peter Dudney embarked on their own company called Laugh Arts, which Hirsch described as kind of an anarchist artist co-op friendly with the likes of Toronto's General Idea, which was a collective who were also known for their conceptual media art projects. And we spent a little bit of time developing a few projects. And after a while, we realized that this was probably likely to turn into something bigger. And that's when we formed the company, Nelvana. Well, Debbie, I hear you had the best foot operation in town. How was it? Terrible. Terrible? Yeah. Did it have any good ones? No, none. Oh, oh. How about your lead? It's no fun having a broken lead, especially when you're a pencil. I mean, you can hardly call yourself a pencil when you've got a broken lead. Have you broken but they it reckon... before? Never. This no? is the first time I've ever broken my lead, yes. Yes. Mind you, I've blunted it. The first few films we did as a team, when we worked in our new studio on King Street, were live-action films um, with a little bit of animation which of course I did. The buyer at the CBC, Rena Cravonia, in those days, was very, very kind to us. She not only purchased these short films for like $1,500, which was nothing, but she also purchased things called fillers. And fillers were necessary because in those days, programs were not precise in their lengths. So we would make these things called fillers. And fillers were simply that. It was just, it could be running water. It could be trees. (laughs) It could be clouds. It actually took us a long time to figure out what a filler was because we were always putting in too much content. So out of those films that we made, we'd run off a bit of footage at the end of various shots and we'd have thousands of fillers. 
So those she bought for like 2,000 each, more than the films we were making. So that was, a, that was how we were able to finance the short films. In those early days, we had Sheridan that was very young. It was just starting up. It was just starting up their animation courses. And, and then as they progressed, as they moved on, um, they came and worked for us. So we had a sort of a supply of young animators. And so that was sort of our dream was to build a studio of young animators and doing, doing original, original films. That was where we were headed. Hi, I'm Peter. That's Lucy. I live here, over there. I, I guess you don't understand me. Do not be afraid, young man. That is not so. We are equipped to identify, comprehend, and speak all languages known. Hello, how do you do? I am fine. So we were slowly building a team. It wasn't a big team, but we probably had about 12, 12 animators, designers at that time. And we thought it was time to do something, to do something bigger. We felt we could do it. So we started to develop Cosmic Christmas based on an idea that Patrick had. And then we just started developing it and Michael went out on the road to try and finance it. And we were able to put together a sort of a small contingent of private investors plus some banks and Jamie Kellner, who was, I think he was with a company called Orion at the time. Michael met him and he committed to buying the film. But it goes, you know, it went together in bits and pieces like anything does. We went out on a limb. A Cosmic Christmas in 1977 would be the first in a series of holiday-themed half-hour animated television specials. And its success on the international market, the film was sold around the world and syndicated across the U.S., achieving one of the highest ratings for any syndicated show up to that time. Uh, it caught the attention of George Lucas, who hired Nelvana to animate a pivotal sequence in the Star Wars Holiday Special in 1978, which saw the introduction, as far as I know, the introduction of the character of Boba Fett. And George Lucas would be a continuing collaborator in the Nelvana story, and his influence would be a major factor in establishing Nelvana's first partnerships with U.S. networks, which was something that few Canadian companies had attempted successfully up to that point. Cosmic Christmas was written by Ken Sobel, who had started writing for The Village Voice in 1959, and in 1972 he wrote an Emmy-winning PBS show called Inside Out, which is what the music you're hearing is from. The theme was actually uncredited library music sourced from the DeWolf Production Music Library. Um, Inside Out was an interesting show because they would always foreground to specific problems that kids would encounter and then end on a cliffhanger, so they wouldn't answer the problem, they would just sort of pose this question. So you'd see a ball flying out into the middle of a busy street, and the question would be, should I run out and get the ball? What should I do? And the idea would be that the, the kids watching it would have to think about it for themselves and decide what they would do instead of just being given the answer. And the same producers ended up making the shows Think About and Self-Incorporated. And I think you can get some of these from AV Geeks, which specializes in classroom and industrial films. So anyways, in 1974, Ken Sobel moved to Toronto, where he would become a key player in the heyday of kids programming at what was later called TV Ontario or TVO. And he also created Under the Umbrella Tree for the CBC, as well as writing things like the Hardy Boys cartoon, The Wizard of Id, George of the Jungle, just tons of stuff. So he brought a lot to the table when it came to working with Nelvana. We met Ken way before Cosmic. Christmas, we met him when he was helping us do one of the um, industrial films. And it was all about energy. 
and it, where energy comes from, you know. And he he really was the best person. He was the best fit for us. If we were doing films for kids, which we kind of were at the time, he was very good in that in that area. And then he moved on and he wrote Devil and Daniel Mouse. My card, pretty lady. Devil May Care Music Production. Beelzebub President. The Nelvana team had the idea to adapt Stephen Vincent Benet's 1936 short story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, itself an adaptation of a much older folktale going back at least as far as Faust. Benet was probably best known for his epic 1928 poem about the American Civil War, John Brown's Body, which won him a Pulitzer Prize. But to horror fans, he gave us Mr. Scratch, who has been reconfigured through multiple adaptations, including the 1941 film All That Money Can Buy, for which composer Bernard Herrmann won an Academy Award. Novana's Halloween season TV special told the story of Dan and Jan, a folk singing duo hard up for an audience and on the verge of starvation after being fired from the nightclub where they work. When Jan is offered the opportunity of a lifetime, a deal with the devil, known here as B.L. Zabub, that will shoot her to the top of the charts overnight, but as a solo act. So she leaves Dan in the dust with barely a second thought as she's embraced on the world stage in her new incarnation as Funky Jan, supported by her BL-appointed backup band, The Animal Kingdom. But when BL comes to claim her soul, Dan comes to Jan's defense in an impromptu mock trial that pits him against the devil himself. Here's writer Ken Sobel from the documentary How We Made the Devil and Daniel Mouse, talking about that last sequence. Okay, look, the point is that it's got to work in terms of the music at the end. The song has to be the thing that convinces everybody that the thing works. So you've got this, the devil, the henchmen, all the people that the devil has brought up, you know, to, to try the case. Now they have to be convinced by the song, by the music, that the music is so strong and that they feel it so much that this becomes the, the thing that causes them to change. Ken, you know what um, song it should be that we reprieve? It's the very first one, the one in, that, in the first uh, club, the folk song, where they get thrown out of the club. They get fired. They get fired, right, because it's like one of their own songs. And so it should, um, you know, it would, it would give strength to their situation. You know, making it into a musical and, and putting all that into it was very much what I was excited about. Well, I have a musical background. I grew, I could have been a rock and roller. I was, you know, I still play keyboards. And um, so a musical element running through these films was always something that drove me personally. Part of the plan was to get singer-songwriter John Sebastian involved, best known as a founding member of the Love and Spoonful before fate surprised him with a number one hit in the form of the Welcome Back Cotter theme in 1976. The next year he would also play on the Doonesbury special, the final collaboration of esteemed animators John and Faith Hubley, and a strangely depressing movie. But it was clear that composing for film and TV projects was a viable avenue. So here's John Sebastian talking about how he got involved in The Devil and Daniel Mouse. I think they first came down to Los Angeles, probably for other stuff, and we had a conversation, and I just, I just thought that they were hilarious. <laughs> uh, that like Michael is so much Captain Sensible, uh-huh. and then behind him, looming up from behind his shoulders is Clive ecstatic about the whole idea. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so far ahead of the thing that you're going, oh my God, can we make this happen for this guy? At the time, what they had begun to do was they'd found this perfect niche uh, in American television, which was their goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they felt that those half hours right around holidays mm-hmm. were a perfect time to make these kind of cartoons. We uh, invited him to the studio. He, he worked very closely with us. He 
worked obviously very closely with me. I had lots and lots and lots of meetings with him. And he also met with the, with the animators a lot. I came up to Toronto, and they were just on the tail end of the uh, Christmas uh, uh, project. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Cosmic Christmas. And so I guess it was sort of dawn of the devil and Daniel Mouse. And uh, I, I, just, I just loved it. Once the script was at least roughed out, we would go through and mark where the songs were and what the songs kind of had to say and what kind of song it had to be. And John and I and Patrick would, you know, have a meeting and talk about how those songs are going to work and how they're going to work into the story. It it was very conversational with Clive. But I think that in each case, I would come up with some kind of a core. And remember, it's so short that you could almost do it over the phone, you know. Yeah. And and so Clive could keep a sort of a, a, a you know, a, a monitoring on what I was doing. And then also the the subject matter lent it to uh, itself to... Uh, you know, uh, talking and playing music over the phone and stuff because we weren't trying to convey big arrangements or anything. And so that was sort of the way that uh, unfolded. So at that point, John would go away and come up with some ideas, which you would then send to us, and we would listen to them, talk about them. He'd go back, he'd make changes if we if we thought there was something missing or if, if we had an idea, he'd build that into it. So it was a lot of back and forth. And John would then come into the studio and play for the, for the animators. So the animators all kind of, you know, knew what was, what was going on musically. It was a real, um, it was a real collaboration. Oh, the minute that I had my toe in the door, what began was, uh, uh, in some meeting or another, I said, you know, the only thing that always annoys me about, uh, you know, uh, cartoons uh, doing uh, musicians is the fingers are never in the right place. They they wouldn't have to go far, and they wouldn't have to be more than three, but we could do it with chords. And they were so into it, and uh, I think, you know, that helped because Clive had, you know, he was a player, so so he uh, really jumped right in, and I spent the next week or so uh, out, out on that funny pier and uh, working with uh, the whole team. You know, one of the great things about that environment was that it was a studio of people that were, you know, all contributing and, and being part of the building of the film. Meanwhile, John Sebastian's writing and recording the music. After all, this is a musical too. Very vulnerable at the beginning and builds in strength. Okay. Let's do a take. For Devil and Daniel Mouse, he wrote some beautiful, beautiful tunes. But there is a sequence of Jan's rise to fame. And we see little clips of her performances. Sometimes I is and sometimes I ain't. Just sweet love, honey, gonna make me faint. you know, five bars of a song. They were, they were songs that John had started to write, had never finished, had developed. They were never 
extended beyond those little little snapshots. No. And I always ask John to finish the song. Valerie Carter, singing the theme song to Jonathan Kaplan's 1975 trucker film White Lion Fever. Though it wasn't widely known until many years after the fact, Valerie Carter performed the singing voice of Jan Mouse in The Devil and Daniel Mouse. She started off in a folk band called Howdy Moon and wrote songs for Jackson Brown and Judy Collins, sang backup for Little Feet, James Taylor, Randy Newman, many others. She even appeared as an actress, briefly, in the bizarre Stacy Keach vehicle Watched in 1974. But Valerie Carter first came onto my radar as a teenager when I saw another film by Jonathan Kaplan, Over the Edge, which featured Carter singing a powerful, plaintive cover of the Five Stair Steps' Uru Child in the film's closing moments. It's another film that is baked into my DNA, and I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't recognize the amazing voice they have in common. Valerie was already a dear friend and also a stable mate for several years. She had been uh, part of a, a, a management company that had managed the Spoonful and then me, and, and this was all a gent named Bob Cavallo. I had already made friends with Valerie because they had paired a group called Howdy Moon with me on a tour because okay. it was very convenient a nice little threesome with no equipment and so i got to know valerie at that point i guess and then i would see her uh as i said uh, because of uh management and uh also i was up around arc records a lot even though i was not an arc artist <laughs> Can you hear me? I'm the one that wanted most to sing you songs. Now there's people listening, but something's missing. She was fantastic. I, you know, I was so lucky to have gotten to know her. I was in the recording session with John and her in LA, and the vocals that she laid down for that were so emotional for her. It was unbelievable i mean it was she was totally into that totally into that song i think it meant a lot to her personally i don't know what i didn't know at the time what was going on but i think it meant a lot to her despite this carter did not use her real name in the film she's credited on screen as laurel run which i always assumed was for contractual reasons but john sebastian maintains that carter had come to that decision of her own accord I was so disappointed that she had made that decision, and I did get uh, actual, I did get her to say, I regret it uh, in, in later years. Yeah. But uh, Laurel Rudd was a, was a uh, secretary at ARC Records. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. And uh, I think she used Laurel Run or something for her name. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but her, because I did say, well, you know, why would you do that? And she said, oh, I really don't want to get pegged as a, as a children's artist. Huh. And to tell you the truth, uh, uh, I, I had felt that uh, pressure because I got several offers of a kind of a, of a raffy nature, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, no, I said, you know, I, I'm not that guy. I smoke dope. I <laughs> hang out with guys in basements. And yeah, uh, that, uh, no. So anyway, that that luckily did not materialize. But uh, I certainly felt sympathy for her uh, 
thinking that, but I also knew it's not going to do anything but good. Yeah. It, it would just say, here's another thing. I blew off in an afternoon. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not committing yourself to a lifetime. Anyway, I, I'm still arguing with her. I don't care she's dead. I'm still arguing. <laughs> hold it, hold it, hold it. No next song, you're fired. No, you can't. I can too. People don't want your kind of music anymore. They want a rock and roll and disco dance. Yeah, man, groovy, fabulous, boogie. From now on, this is a rock club. The themes that dominate the film, selling one's soul, the ability to recognize one's true allies and work together to bolster one's chances of defeating corruptive forces, are greatly intertwined with the Nelvana story itself. I think that's a pretty common theme in, in sort of creative circles. And it all comes down to, I mean, a song from the heart. We are talking about something that you feel, that is something you believe in, that you, that you, that you absolutely are committed to and is you, as opposed to something out there that you're supposed to be doing or that is going to make somebody a lot of money. I mean, that, there's the devil, right? A star. How can you be a star without an audience? If I were a rock star, people would listen. I just, yeah, it's just interesting because there's like, you know, like Jan has this line where she's just like, oh, if only I was a star, then people would listen, you know? And so there's this real conversation happening about how valuable compromise is if it means that you can then get your message out to a wider audience, you know? And I always thought about the Nelvana story kind of in relation to that kind of quote or that sentiment, you know, of like, is it better sometimes to compromise so that you can get your message out wider or is it better to say stay like the small folk singer that's playing in a tiny club you know and do things your own way well it's a balance isn't it it really is it's a very very delicate balance and you know some people manage to do it and some people don't and you know it either goes one way or it goes another and if you can if you can balance those things, if you can convince the world that you, what you're doing personally is what everybody else wants to hear and wants to see, that's success. Hey, all you freaky, funky people, I hear what you're saying and I dig where you're coming from because that's where it's at. Here they are, Funky Jan and the Animal Kingdom, number one this week, next week, and every week. And The Devil and Daniel Mouse was a success by any standard. It was followed up with an LP and a story and songbook, which of course I had as a kid. And much later it inspired a Bauhaus song called Party of the First Part, which features dialogue from the film. But most importantly, it paved the way for Nelvana to make its first feature. Well, it was a big success for us. It didn't make life any easier because we had to go on and then make another one and make another one, you know. I mean, at that time, we were bootstrapping everything we did. We did not have funding. We had a group of investors that go back to Cosmic Christmas and all the, all the way through to, to Rock and Roll, the feature, who were very much on side, but also very demanding. But it was, you know, it was tough. We felt it was successful. We got, we certainly were recognized at home and to some degree in the States for what we were doing, doing features and doing more uh, radical uh, films, cutting edge films. I wanted to build the studio with all our, you know, young, fabulous talent that we had who were also really interested in the art of animation and where it was going to sort of be our own bosses and to come up with projects that we 
that we nurtured, that we created, and that we took to the market. That would have been, that was my ideal. And so and I, did you, was part of that vision getting out of the children's space at any point? For me, it was. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Patrick or Michael thought about it in that light. Certainly not Michael. I think he's always thought the children's market was very, very, very uh, viable market. Um, I'm much more interested in edgy adult themes and always, always was. Rock and rule. Journey to a world where the cosmic forces of music, magic, and technology collide. Bringing you head to head with a beast from another dimension. The film opens with a square-up explaining its post-apocalyptic setting many years in the future. After an unnamed war has wiped out the Earth's human population and left behind a hybrid mutant race of anthropomorphized dogs, cats, and rats known as Drats. The Drats seek refuge from the urban crime and starvation of the gloomy metropolis in seedy nightclubs and concert halls, where music provides the most ample means of emotional escape. In one of these clubs, called Mylars, which is run by the obnoxious zoot-suited mouse of the same name, Omar, Angel, Dizzy, and Stretch are about to go on stage. Backstage drama erupts between alternate singers Omar and Angel over whose song will be performed as the evening's final number. Meanwhile, the reclusive but ubiquitously influential rock star Mock is trawling the dark dystopian streets of Omtown in his elongated future car, searching for a very special voice that will unleash a demonic being from another realm. Mock stumbles upon Mylars, and as he sits enshrouded in shadows watching Angel sing her signature tune, which is voiced by Debbie Harry, his magic ring begins to strobe, signaling that he's finally found what he's looking for and thus begins a series of dark misadventures that will see Mock, the very personification of the alternately seductive and decrepit nature of corporate greed, kidnap Angel and whisk her away to the chaotic conurbation of Nuke York, manipulate and drug her friends, and employ any means to isolate and turn them against each other. And his plan is to set up a massive concert at Nuke York's Carnegie Hall, where Angel's voice will unleash the beast that will grant him unheard of destructive powers. So that's the synopsis. But with Rock and Roll being such an epic production, it meant more cooks in the kitchen. And Lubert, Smith, and Hirsch welcomed input from the whole team with sometimes schizophrenic results that would affect the cohesiveness of the finished film. The result was that juvenile pratfall humor sat uncomfortably alongside existential horror, terrifying creature design, drug use, and shameless close-ups of barely covered female body parts. That was what we were told was the, was the problem with it. It fell between the cracks. It wasn't a kid's movie, it wasn't an adult movie. There's a sense of the macabre that runs through A Cosmic Christmas, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, and Rock and Rule as a means of emphasizing the sometimes dark motives and mysterious benefactors such as Beelzebub, the character design was appropriately horrific when the story called for it. While the roly-poly devil could take on a cherubic persona when he wanted to win over a naive target such as Jan, his temper was quick to flare if things deviated from plan or schedule, and it's in these moments that many young audiences got their first real taste of terror. Well, <laughs> I mean, Villains are the best screen characters. And it's fun, too. I mean, there's no fun in having mamby-pamby, happy, go-lucky, nice, clean characters. They're no fun at all. You have to have evil in the world. Yeah, because, I mean, like, Beelzebub was doing stuff that, like, is in The Exorcist, you know? <laughs> like, yes. Turning around and stuff, you know? That was absolutely from The Exorcist. That was a direct <laughs> lift. <laughs> so, 
I gave you a chance, and you beat the devil. Well, I've learned my lesson. I've kind of harped on this, but The Devil and Daniel Mouse contains strong admonitions against selling out. Canadians, specifically those within the arts community, are very suspicious of commercial success. But if anything can be gleaned from the early films of Nelvana, it is that success comes at a price. In The Devil and Daniel Mouse, the villain is none other than the devil himself, but Mock in Rock and Rule, however demonic in his grotesque character design, he was once a regular person, disfigured by success and megalomania. So one has to wonder whether the Nelvana team struggled with getting successful, having the studio grow and take on bigger contracts, and somehow wanting the studio to retain that sense of being a passion project. You know, I didn't really think about it that much. I didn't think of it as a struggle to remain true to ourselves. I didn't think of it as a struggle between being, you know, having... Um, you know, personal stories to tell and having commercial stories to tell. I, I didn't think about it like that until rock and roll, until the end of rock and roll, you know, and that's when everything changed. The group's just starting to come together. I think we got a pretty good chance of taking on the old town circuit for the rest of your life, your life, your life, your life, your life, your life, your life. Call it what you want. I, I believe in miracles. If you think you're going anywhere with the Omars of this world, open your eyes. Accept my offer. No, Mark. I couldn't leave them for anything. I didn't offer you anything. I offer you everything. No! But we all have our illusions far take away right up until and during the making of rock and roll that was that was life that was my life and i i didn't i just assumed that this film would be huge and that it would go out there and people would love it i had no doubt i had absolutely no doubt so i didn't think is it commercial enough is it you know, is it this, is it that? It is what it is. We're making it as good as we can. We're putting everything into it. I mean, my goodness, we had acting lessons for the, for the animators. You know, looking back over it, I mean, it was a really fabulous time that will never, ever happen again. Never. The film's difficult categorization made it quick to fall through the promotional cracks when United Artists, who was meant to distribute the film in the US, was bought by MGM, and its original champions on the UA staff were replaced by executives with little interest in the property. So Clive Smith and animator Frank Neeson were left to do grassroots promotion on their own, with discouraging results. You know, it was our stupidity. I mean. We just wanted to make the film better. We didn't realize that the most important thing about making the film is delivering it. So by the time we delivered it, there were different, you know, new brooms sweeping. And um, there was really nobody at the studio who was totally committed to it. I was in Boston driving around a rented car completely covered in rock and roll posters. I plastered the whole car with rock and roll posters. Frank Nissen, my co-director, was with me. And we did a tour of all the universities, some film clubs. We did TV interviews. We did radio interviews. My goodness, we screamed the movie, screamed, screamed it out loud and clear yeah. and the theater that I went in in Boston for the opening there were five people in the theater so you can imagine from feeling so confident that this was going to be a smash hit to walking into a theater with five people in it 
that was a wake-up. It was horrible. You must remember that my last concert was not completely sold out. So, it was still great. I was there. Don't toy with me, Angel. I'll show them power. I can do it. We were bankrupt. We were borrowing money to finish the film. Patrick, Michael and I, you know, we said, you know, we have a couple of options here. You know, we, we close. We bank up, we, go, we close. Or we find a way to do something a lot more commercial. And that was in the form of the Care Bears movie, which we made, I think, for two million. And it went out and made something like 50 in the first couple of weeks. And we didn't own one tiny, tiny piece of it. It was purely a service job but it kept the studio alive. And so, you know, that was, that was a big turning point. I mean, it wasn't, all, it wasn't all bad. I mean, we did some really interesting stuff after that, you know. <laughs> Inspector Gadget was, was something that came to us, well, through Michael. I mean, Michael went out and got, got these projects but it wasn't our project. We didn't invent it. We didn't invent the Care Bears. There's service work on things like 20 Minute Workout, Inspector Gadget, Strawberry Shortcake Cartoon, and most successfully, the Care Bears movie saw Nelvana bounce back from veritable bankruptcy to pay off Rock and Roll's substantial debts in under two years. Other than a few hiccups along the way, over time Nelvana steadily climbed the ranks of the animation superpowers to where they became one of the most successful animation studios in history. But you never went back to making another movie like Rock and Rule. No. So no. Wh why not? We just never managed to get back to that position, you know? It was it was still, I mean, we were still not a public company. We still had no you know, real uh, pot of, of, of gold to, to work with. We were, um, you know, financing everything day to day, day to day. And um, it just seems interesting to me, though, that it was like, you know, if you, you're like, you never got to the position to get again to make another movie like that, but you weren't in that position in the first place. You just sort of had the naivety to think that you could do it. Anyway. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I can't remember if it was Patrick or Michael. One of them told me, because I had talked to him about this, and and he said, like, you don't understand what the what our dream was. He was like, you're projecting your dream onto us. <laughs> he was like saying that I, he was like, our dream was to make a successful animation studio, you know, and he's like, and we did. That's what we did, you know. So he was like saying that, like, me having all these questions about, you know, oh, did it break your heart? And was it was like this? And he was just like, you're projecting your right things onto it. That sounds like Patrick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, we all had slightly different dreams. This is yeah. the thing. And this is probably one of the reasons that Studio was successful to some degree, you know. I mean, I didn't think of it as, oh, my dream is to make a successful animation studio. I mean, what's that? I mean, my dream is to make good films, brilliant films, beautiful films that people will see. So then to close, it has to be asked, does Clive Smith still believe that a song from the heart beats the devil every time? Well, yeah. It's a matter of your own conviction, your own belief. You believe in something strongly enough and it doesn't really matter who else believes it. Because if you've got that conviction and you've got that energy and that force you've beaten the devil anyway the devil doesn't even know he's been beaten looking for something that there's no set way to find you got to listen to your own second mind you were afraid you wouldn't be strong enough alone now look where the music can take you if you let it go look where the music can take you when
Listening to A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, a podcast that documents the history of children's film and television from 1965 to 1985 through interviews with the people who brought these projects to life. This was the very first episode, written and edited by me, Kayla Janice, adapted from my book chapter on Nelvana's early years in the book Terror of the Soul, the Canadian horror film, edited by Gina Freetag and Andre Loisel for the University of Toronto Press in 2015. Special thanks are due, of course, to Clive Smith and John Sebastian, as well as Bill Ackerman and Amanda Reyes. You may be interested to know that John Sebastian has a CD of songs from his Novana Productions called Short Songs for Shorter People. If you're interested in more information on rock and rule, apparently a whole book has just been written on the subject by Peter Rowe, an animator currently working at Novana. Clive Smith has written the foreword to it and will be released sometime in the near future. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.